Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting guest, a guest that is probably one of the godfathers behind the, the everything that is SEO related. So I was actually very excited to have him uh, on the conversation. And, and, and yeah, so Rand Fiskin, welcome on board to the Dealmaker Show. Thank you for having me, Alejandra. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's really awesome. You know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for for everything that you've done. And and the most importantly, Rand, you've been always so open and so authentic, you know, on, on your blog post and and all of that. So so very much appreciated that as I was growing myself and maturing as an entrepreneur. So how did you get really with the uh, started with the entrepreneurial bug, Rand? Uh, um, well, I, I think I sort of fell into it by accident, to be honest. I dropped out of college um, way back in 2001 and started working with my mom, Jillian, who I, who I know you've met. And she was running a, you know, marketing consultancy, helping small businesses with logos and letterheads and business cards uh, and yellow page ads and all those kinds of things. And when I joined, uh, a lot of her clients started needing websites. And so I was doing the website design and building. And we struggled for a long time. We were in debt and losing money on the business and uh, getting ourselves uh, problematic clients who you know, weren't always paying or weren't paying on time. And we ended up needing to do some of our own subcontracting work. So, you know, we had hired subcontractors to do things like SEO and we couldn't afford to pay them. And so I started learning SEO and doing it myself. Uh, and as I got frustrated with that practice, I started a blog called SEO Moz. Really, that was the the process, very accidental. And when it turned out that the blog attracted customers. And then, you know, when the software we built started uh, to become popular, then some investors reached out and said, Hey, Rand, do you want to, you know, take this to a bigger scale and uh, try and be a, a venture backed business? And I was excited about that prospect and said, yes. Uh, and that's when, yeah, they, they basically um, asked that I become CEO. And so then I went from kind of a you know, founder and web designer and blogger to also CEO uh, and ran that company for, for seven years. So it, was, it. it wasn't not quite an entrepreneurial bug, sort of a, yeah. Uh, kind of like a more process. convoluted. Yeah, yeah. Like a more convoluted story. And what, what was the experience of working with your mother? Uh, it was good at times and challenging at times. I think, you know, that's how, what I've heard from a lot of people who've worked with family. Uh, Got it. Yeah, you know, funny enough, my last uh, company, which thank God, you know, we we were able to do an exit because, you know, that's uh, typically not the uh, there's not really high chances when you go on the hyper growth path. But yeah. um, but I was very lucky. I mean, I, I built the last business with my wife and that's obviously a recipe that I don't recommend doing at home. But uh, for us, thank God it, it worked out. So so let me ask you, Rand, what was the business model with Moss? Yeah, uh, it's funny you mentioned that. So Alejandro, actually, I have talked to a ton of people who've done businesses with families and people who've done it with their partners are the ones who seem to have the most success. It really tends to be like brothers and sisters and parents and children 
that have the most, the hardest times. Um, but it. anyway, yeah. yeah I, mean, so. I mean, in, in my case, uh, Rand, it's a, it was really amazing because we knew that no matter what we had our best interest and that we had each yeah. other's back. And that was, that was very special because the thing is that when you are, especially during the early days, every day is really tough. I mean, it's like 90% are like full of fires. And I mean, every, every, every single day is full of fires when you're at a hyper growth, you know, uh, kind of like level, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's, it's really good to have people like that, you know, behind the trenches with you. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's absolutely one of the best parts. Uh, yeah. So, so, so in, in your case, Rand, what was the business model with, with Mosh? Because you yeah. were pointing to this. I mean, it started as a blog and then all of a sudden, became a business. So how did you manage to understand what was the best way to, to monetize? Um, again, at the time, this was something very accidental that I didn't understand. And I think certainly now I'm a much more sophisticated entrepreneur and, you know, someone who has a lot more knowledge around this stuff. But, uh, you know, the reality was that we were a consulting business. And when, the blog started to gain popularity. Many people were reaching out to us specifically for SEO consulting, which I was then uh, doing in addition to sort of writing a blog and doing web design for some of our historic clients. Right. And then uh, we had this software that we had built basically for our own internal use, you know, little tools for us to do repetitive frustrating SEO tasks, you know, like grab page rank for a bunch of pages or go check rankings on a regular basis or crawl a website and check for errors or problems or, you know, missing tags or whatever it was. And these, I think there were maybe seven or eight little tools like this. And I wanted to make them public. I, you know, I, uh, as you mentioned at the start of the show, I like to be very transparent about everything. So, you know, I told Matt, uh, our, our programmer, I said, you know, Hey man, can we, we open these up. I want to, you know, I want more people to be able to access them. I want everybody to be able to see this. And I think it'll attract more clients for us when they see the the cool tools that we have and how we've built them. And Matt said, no, we can't open them up because uh, they'll be, our servers won't be able to handle it. It'll be too expensive. Um, you know, it's too much bandwidth. And so I said, okay, well, how about we put up a PayPal paywall? Like you have to PayPal us 30 bucks. And, uh, and if you do, then you get access to, uh, to the tools. Right. And Matt said, fine, I'll, I'll do it. He, he was, I think he did it over the holidays, uh, of 2006. He, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of other work going on. Right. And, uh, come early 2007, we, we launched this suite of tools and six months later, we have more or as much revenue from the subscription, you know, from these people paying us 30 bucks a month, hundreds of them as we do from all of our clients combined. And I think that's when we went, oh, I think there's a business in software subscriptions. <laughs> that's amazing. And how, how many users did you have at the, at the time on visiting the blog where you said, you know, maybe we should take a look at monetizing this? Oh, monetizing the blog. You know, we tried a few times to monetize the blog from maybe 05, you know, 06, 07 um, with ads. We'd, we'd put up like a few ads for you know, various SEO services or whatever it was. Uh, and I think that never worked out well. Um, it just wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't enough money and the traffic to the site was okay at the time. I think it was, you know, maybe a couple thousand visits a day. 
uh, in 05 and then, you know, scaling up to probably four or 5,000 by 07, which yeah. really helped of course, with the, once we launched the software tools, but, um, yeah, monetizing the blog, the, the monetization was prior to the software script subscription was just consulting leads. Got it. Well, you know, regardless, I'm glad that you guys uh, found the business model because I have been a, a happy customer for years. So, oh, uh, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. so that was, that was pretty cool. So you mentioned uh, earlier on that at one point you guys started receiving investors knocking on the door. So I believe this is public, but how, how much capital have the company raised so far? So let's see, uh, 1.1 million in 2007. I raised our big round in 2012. That was 18 uh, 18 million. And then I, when, after I stepped down to CEO, uh, Sarah, who was my chief operating officer that I promoted to the role, she in 2016 raised another 10. So total 29.1. Got it. So I guess in the, um, in the process, how, how did you see the fundraising process change as, as you were like maturing from like the 1 million to the 14 million? How, how did you see that changing? Yeah. Uh, so certainly the 1 million came to us, you know, it was really Michelle Goldberg and, and Kelly Smith from Curious Office. They reached out to us and said, Hey, you know, we think this is exciting and, um, we think this can be really be something. Do you want to, you know, take some money and, and try and grow this? And I was a little nervous and caught off guard. I didn't really understand the investment world at all. Uh, I actually, I connected them up, right? I said, you know, rather than sort of play one off the other and try and get a better deal, I said like, hey, Kelly, you should meet Michelle. Both of you are interested in funding this, you know, this business. Um, <laughs> right. Maybe you guys can like come to an agreement. And that's exactly what they did. Um, wow. they, they sort of came to me with a, well, came to my mom and I with, with a really great offer. Um, yeah. I thought it was very generous. I've written about it. So we, we had a $6 million pre-money valuation and which meant 7.1 post, which meant ignition and curious office combined owned you know, 14% uh, of the company, which was just awesome. Right. Um, for us. And, and uh, that, you know, left us in a lot of control. Uh, we, when we raised the, the $18 million round in 20, 12, I had basically been pitching investors actively for oof, four years, wow. four or five years. So, you know, just going down, making tons of trip to, trips to Silicon Valley, uh, especially heavily in 2009 and then again in 2011 and, um, you know, meeting with investors in New York and Boston and, and trying the classic, like, let me sell you my business. Yeah. And that did not work well. Uh, I never got I never got a single offer from those kinds of folks. The only, um, I think the only reason that we were able to raise that $18 million round is because, so Brad Feld, who's uh, at Foundry Group in Boulder, Colorado, he, actually his wife, Amy, had been reading my wife, Geraldine's blog. And oh. Geraldine had written about, you know, some of our trips to Silicon Valley and San Francisco and how I was meeting with investors. Amy passed that blog post on to Brad and passed on another blog post that I'd written about the failed fundraising attempt. Yeah. Brad read it. He loved it. And he, he wrote a blog post himself about it and said, you know, publicly in his blog post, just said, Hey, Rand, you know, if there's ever anything I can do to help, uh, feel free to reach <laughs> out. 
I love and it. so, yeah, I got to, I got to meet Brad essentially through Geraldine, um, wow. through my wife. So yeah. Wow. And then we had a, we formed a relationship and, uh, I called him up in 2012 and said like, Hey, I'm looking to, to try and raise money for this. And do you know anyone who'd be a good match? And he said, I know a few companies, but let me pitch you on why you should let Foundry invest. <laughs> right. Right. So, That's amazing. It works out great. And and I guess during during these uh, during these experiences, was there like how did you find the alignment with with the valuation of the business? I mean, was there any exercises or any market research, or they just came with a term sheet, or or how did how was that? Uh, I mean, it was somewhat easier because we were already making revenue. I think that it can be very tough to value a business that doesn't have any revenue yet, which is of course what I just did with Spark Toro, but we can talk about that in a sec. You know, essentially they looked at revenue multipliers based on or growth rate and um, trajectory and said like, okay, here's, you know, lick your finger, put it in the air. Here's a rough range and, you know, what's comfortable for both parties. And that, that worked out. Got it. And I guess uh, looking back around on those fails that those, those failed attempts really that, that you did going to San Francisco, because you know, every founder, you know, at one point they say, I got to travel to San Francisco and see and try my luck. So I guess, I guess looking back around this, is there anything that, that you think you should have done differently and perhaps, you know, would have increased your chances? Oh my gosh. I mean, uh, I love Brad and Foundry and they, um, I think are some of the best venture investors in the world, but I think I absolutely would not have, I would never, I would never have tried to raise money again after 2007, and I wouldn't have raised our 2012 round. Uh, so yeah, I would do things very, very differently. I mean, I think the whole the whole book I wrote, Lost and Founder, is basically here's all these things that I should have done differently. Yeah, and we'll get into that in a bit. So, um, so I guess the, the the next one here is, um, you know, when when you receive those checks, and obviously, especially during the early days, how aligned were you, for example, on? On valuation with let's say your your mother you know and 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 the other folks that were part of that you know initial founding team was there like a like a minimum check that was a that you guys were shooting for or no i don't i don't think so really i mean we basically looked at the deal that ignition offered and said honestly this sounds great let's do it the 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 hardest conversation that we had was uh they wanted me to be ceo and and while i had been you know, sort of running the SEO side of the business. Jillian had always been uh, president in title, had always managed sort of the finances and, you know, and been the the, the head of the company. Yeah. And so that was a tough, I think that was the toughest part of the conversation. Got it, got it. With Foundry, you know, they, they made us uh, what I thought was a good offer. I countered um, and they came back and said yes to the counter. And so, yeah, that worked out well too. Got it. I mean, obviously, when when you bring in investors, the the corporate structure changes uh, quite a bit. So yeah. at most, you you've been the the chairperson. So really, uh, building and leading, you know, boards, you know, is something that you have been quite uh, you know experienced over over these years. But I guess in terms of learnings, what would you say have been your biggest learnings really in building and leading boards? I'm not a massive fan of the board structure, uh, board of directors structure. Okay. I think that, to be quite honest, I think that it is often better and healthier to have. So it, 
the German model actually, I think is, is really, really smart where essentially you have a board of directors and uh, most boards have at least one to three people who are uh, working in the business. So not on, they, they represent the employees and the team and they work at the company and they're on the board of directors. I think that's a really smart thing that almost no uh, American company does. And um, and I think that's to our detriment. I think that that's you know one of the reasons why the American work experience is often so exploitative. I also I'm not I'm not sure that it's the best thing in the world for um, a business to always be dominated in terms of control by its uh, outside institutional investors. I mean, I understand that from their perspective, right? They they're the money, and so they get to dictate the terms. But I don't know that I don't think that that leads to the best outcomes or the healthiest priorities for the business itself in the macro. Got it. Got it. And I guess uh, to close the loop here, uh, Rand, you know, obviously you are a huge expert when it comes to to SEO. And in terms of of trends for for those that are listening to us, because obviously there is probably going to be a lot of founders that are really trying to figure out the the organic growth of the business. And definitely sure. SEO is a big one. So. Where do you see really the trends and, and things moving, um, you know, towards the future, let's say like next five to, to 10 years from, from an SEO perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think Google has made it very clear that they are trying to do more and more on and in the search results themselves and sending less and less traffic through, you know, to other people's websites. And so I think a lot of SEO over the next five to 10 years is going to be about controlling what people see in and on Google search results and sort of claiming opportunities for rich results of all kinds. Um, you know, everything from what, what's now called the featured snippets to the knowledge graph to, you know, the advertisements, all, all this type of stuff, the image results, the video results, et cetera, et cetera. I think a, a lot of SEO is going to be concerned with that. And there's going to be, uh, there, there will continue to be tremendous opportunity. And I think plenty of focus uh, in SEO on, you know, ranking highly and getting the number one organic position and, you know, trying to earn traffic through that. But, uh, I think that it, that will be joined by this on SERP SEO process over the next few years. Got it. Got it. I mean, you, you, you were for quite a bit with Moss, So that was 17 years, 17 years yeah, of that's right. your life and, and professional career. I mean, that's really not the typical norm. You know, now you see startup founders like being at it for, you know, three to five years. I mean, not even, it's, it's really unbelievable. So I guess out of all these years, because 17 years could be like a hundred years of corporate America around this. It's really <laughs> unbelievable. So, so if, and I know that, that we're going to get into the book in a little bit, but what has been that lesson? for you, like that one lesson that you know for sure you're going to keep very closely in mind as, as you're building SparkToro, which is your next business? Mm, I mean, there's so, so many. I think probably the, maybe the biggest one is that I'm going to, if there's a traditional existing structure or a, you know, best practice or a common path that everyone sort of follows around how they do something, I am always going to question that. I think that in a lot of ways, you know, Moz was an experience for me where I went through this um, 
very traditional kind of structure, right? So, you know, build a software business. Once it starts taking off, raise some venture capital, uh, try and grow at an extremely fast pace, which is, you know, what we did for for seven years at 100% year-over-year growth, you know, raise more money, um, basically put yourself on a path where you need to have a, a, a massive exit in order to fulfill your, your investors' um, you know, demands. And then I stepped down as CEO you know, when I, when I uh, got depression in, in 2014. Yeah. And uh, I, um, yeah, I'm not sure that that was also the right move. Although, yeah. Yeah. So got I, it. in a lot of ways, I think I'll just be questioning orthodoxy all across the board. And you know it's 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 really interesting that that you mentioned the the depression uh, subject. I was actually speaking about it with with a founder today, and and you know at at one point or another, you know it, it really becomes very cloudy for for founders. I mean it's it's a really tough and challenging journey. So is there any recommendation that that you will give to to anyone that is right now in a at a probably dark dark and challenging period in their journey? Oh gosh. Um, I mean, so one of the things that's very, uh, curious about depression is that you, you can be in a very dark part of your journey and not have, you know, mental or emotional issues around that. And you can be in very good parts of your journey and it can strike you very badly. So, you know, I, I mean, I think depression will will blow out of proportion anything that is actually going on. For example, you know the um, when you know when I was um, when I was going through this, Moz had slowed its growth rate from you know 100 percent year over year to like 55 percent, which is still phenomenal, right? And um, we had tons of money left in the bank. We 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 weren't worried about layoffs at all. Um, but I was panicked, right? I thought everything was falling apart and collapsing. I thought it was the end of the world for the business. Yeah, uh, yeah, just dumb, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. it was. Uh, it, you know, it'll it'll blow it out of proportion for you. So uh, I think if you're if you're going through it, I mean, a few a few things that I would definitely recommend. First off, absolutely go see a therapist. That is just hugely important. Uh, you should definitely um, probably also talk to um, someone who can prescribe medicine and have those conversations as well. Um, I would I would urge you to, you know, read up on some of the research around depression. It is, um, it is not consistently escapable, meaning yeah. um, there there's no one path that works for everyone. So it's not that you know, oh, well, if I listen to Rand and follow his advice, you know, I can, I can get out of this. That, that That's not the case. Um, however, there are lots of habits and things that you can do that will, uh, that are correlated with people um, getting out of that, that mental state. And one of those, a, a big one is getting lots of sleep. So literally eight and a half hours a night, you know, getting yourself a Fitbit or something that tracks sleep. And then you know, if you have to dose yourself with, <laughs> with Zequel, you know, 10 <laughs> times in a row, it, do it right. Get, get, get your eight and a half hours, um, uh, if you possibly can. And, uh, I would certainly try and, you know, recommend a regular exercise regimen as well. That's, that is positively correlated with, um, 
with getting out of depression. And, and many folks feel like they cannot do these things, right? They can't make time for themselves. They can't prioritize their whatever, their sleep, their physical health, their exercise, their eating habits, their you know, romantic lives, their friendships, uh, because the business is all consuming. Yeah. And um, I think it, it, it's, it's hard to process, but that, that is wrong. That is, that is dead wrong. Your business is A, not more important than you are. B, your business will long-term be worse off with you in this, you know, in this state. Um, you, we cannot, we cannot make good logical decisions. We can't process information well. We can't work at our peak um, when we're under, you know, when we're in the, these sorts of conditions. Um, and you, you know, all human beings sort of function much more poorly after our, you know, 35, 40 that they work in a week. Yeah. And so even though you think that putting in a 60, 70, 80 hour work week um, is you making sacrifices for your business that are required, you know, you just have to do it and push through. Uh, in fact, you're just harming yourself, your decision-making ability, your, your business in the long run. And, and I would really back off of that. Look, every, all of us have to put in an 80 hour work week once in a while. That yeah. is part of life. That's okay. But if you're doing it consistently, you're doing something very, very, very wrong. Uh, it should not be a badge of honor or pride. Yeah. You need to trim back, find better ways to handle whatever obligations you have in the business. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And the, and Ron, thank you for for opening up and and really sharing because this is something that that people don't really talk about, and they, you know it's it's something that at one point or another, you know, it, it just gets cloudy in the journey. So, so thank yeah. you for that. So, Rand, I guess uh, switching gears here a little bit, can you tell us a little bit more about Spark Toro, your next venture? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so this, so Spark Toro, like Moz, is going to be a, a marketing software company we're basically trying to build um, build a search engine for audience audience intelligence so if you want to know uh, a lot more about chefs in Los Angeles or you want to know about um, architects in Canada or you want to know about um, tabletop role-playing game players in the UK and you're trying to target these audiences with your new product uh, or your you know new marketing campaign, there are a lot of things that you need to know, right? Where, where do these people pay attention to? Where, where do these people uh, go and pay attention? What are the publications and people that they pay attention to? Uh, what sorts of affinities do they have? Uh, what other crossovers do they have? How can I, you know, market and reach them? And that is exactly what our tool is designed to do. So you could say, oh, okay, I'm a you know, we're launching a new piece of restaurant equipment. We want to target chefs in Los Angeles first. We're going to try and um, maybe do an event. Let's figure out which events um, chefs in LA go to so that we can most wisely spend our marketing dollars on that. And I can type in chefs Los Angeles, get a list back, you know, click on the events tab, see all the ones that are most popular choose one from there as opposed to blindly trying to guess, well, I think, you know, my, I heard from my friend that he goes to this, so maybe that's the one for us. Um, I think that the, that kind of marketing is 
is very challenging right now. And, you know, we struggled a bunch with this at Moz. I struggled a lot with this actually when I was launching the book and trying to figure out good amplification targets, right? And where my audience was, who they paid attention to, where should I go market the book? Where should I tell Penguin Random House to go spend their marketing dollars, right? <laughs> um, right. And by the way, that's saying, I got to tell you, when I, when I published my book uh, a couple of years ago, it's, it's really like a huge amount of weight. You know, it's really on the author to, to really get it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And getting that list together. Right. So Alejandro, I'm sure you had this, this challenge where, you know, they said, okay, well send us a list of people that you want to send a copy to and a personal note. <laughs> right? Yes. Yes. And who and should be on that list? Right. Yeah, like, no, there's people was... in your network, obviously, but, but if you could type in, you know, here's the audience for my book. Oh, and yeah. here's, here's a person or here's a publication that 30% of the audience I care about reads. Awesome. That's who we should be pitching. Right. But how do you know that you can't yeah. know that unless you survey them or like steal all their phones and look at their bookmarks and their Twitter accounts and their <laughs> Facebook pages. Right. So, yeah. No, it makes total sense. And and I and I was actually very impressed there, Rand. I took a look at the amount that you guys have raised. I believe you say about a little bit over a million. Is that right? Yeah, we raised uh, 1.3 million um, in a very unusual round, but we can yeah, talk that's about that. What I was, that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, I saw like 34 like high-profile people participating. So how, how does this really come about? I mean, did you go for dinners and lunches with everyone or did you like create a party for everyone to join? Or how did this happen, Rand? Uh, I mean, in a lot of ways, right, I have, to your point earlier, 17 years of connections and, you know, a network and people who know me and like me and trust me and, you know, think that I have a, a good shot in this field. Yeah. And yeah, I have, I did not do a lot of pitching. I don't think I did any pitching in person, maybe with two or three exceptions. Almost all of it was via email and phone. So basically, you know, reaching out to folks and saying like, hey, um, I'm doing this and, you know, you've offered in the past to be helpful. I think I'll, I'll show you, I think one of the emails, it's in the blog post about it, right? I, I would send an email to folks and say like, hey, um, I'm building this company and this is very embarrassing and weird and hard for me because I hate asking people for money, but uh, I think you would be hugely helpful. And it would, and I'd be kicking myself if, you know, six months from now you said, Hey, why didn't you invite me to invest? So here's my pitch, right? One, two, three. Um, one was basically, I'm building this company with this unusual structure Two, here's what we're trying to do. And three, here's the sort of, um, prospectus. Got it. That was it. Got it. Really cool. I mean, you went from from you were mentioning earlier, like three or four years of uh, failed attempts to to now, you know, being able to to raise money with all these contacts. So obviously, I guess as a second time entrepreneur, you found it a bit a bit easier than being a first timer. Is that right? It, absolutely true. And also, I think I think two things really helped here. One was while we had a very unusual structure, it was extremely investor friendly. So if you look at the way that the SparkToro documents are structured, it's essentially, you know, people, you get, um, uh, you get paid back in, in two ways, right? One is you get a percentage of the profits every year, uh, yeah. the percentage that you own. Two is if and when the company ever sells, you know, you make money that way too. But before, you know, before Casey and I can raise our salaries, before we get to take any of the profits in the business, uh, we basically, um, we have to pay back our investors their initial sum. 
Okay. So the, you know, the, I think the likelihood of that happening, people looked at that and said, Hey, that's, that's really good. You know, I may not make 10 times my investment on this thing. Yeah. Um, for sure. I might, I mean, I very well might, but gosh, this structure is really, you know, really tempting. And this is a company that, you know, the founders are going to be very frugal and conservative. They're, they're not looking for hyper growth or rather they're looking for hyper growth, but only if they can do it profitably. Yeah. Right. They're not going to burn tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to get the growth rate up by, you know, 10 or 20 percentage points. Whereas, whereas actually that's something that Moz really needs to do. You know, yeah. if Moz had a way to get its growth rate up 10, 20 percentage points, I, I think it would, you know, easily go out and raise 20 more million dollars to do that. Of course. So. And, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting approach. I mean, I think that one of the, the, I would say, things that I recommend founders is that whenever they approach the, the process of, of fundraising, that they do it not from a negotiation perspective, because in a negotiation, there's always one party that loses and another one that wins more from a partnership perspective where both sure. parties. Win. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, that's glad, a great, great yeah, philosophy. Glad, glad that you mentioned that. Uh, so, so now let's talk about your book. So lost and founders. So what kind of information would the founders that are listening to the, the finding this book? Uh, actually, there's a lot of stories from many of the parts that, that you and I skipped today, but, uh, a lot of stories and experiences and lessons and then and then you know research and examples from other companies uh, around these hard parts of building and growing a business. I tried yeah. to you know I tried to sort of tackle the the ones that we don't talk about, right? How much money do founders actually make compared to other businesses? What about employees? how how well does that go? Um, what are the hardest parts about managing a business? And managing a bunch of people as you as you grow and scale rapidly, and yeah. you know someone goes from you know two years ago there was twenty of us and now there's a hundred of us. Um, what's going on? And uh, you know how is what is that like for a manager? Uh, I go through the tough parts of depression. There's a chapter about that. Uh, there's a chapter about layoffs, uh, which Moz did in twenty twenty sixteen, I think, yeah. and. Uh, the you know the really tough parts about fundraising and about investment structures, uh, some of the challenges of switching from a services to a you know consulting services model to a product subscription model, which I know a lot of people in the entrepreneurial world think hard about, and I think is actually kind of a false choice these days. Got um, it. Got it. Like people thinking, push you to choose one or the other, but yeah. And just digging deeper on on this uh, rant, I mean, talking on about the tra the transactional aspect a little bit. You cover in the book, you know, the the topic about founders selling earlier in the game. So, so yeah. I guess, what what are your general thoughts around this? I think that if you have an opportunity early in your business to sell for a transformational amount of money. Some, basically, uh, a, an amount of money that will transform the future of your life and your family's life and the people around you, and you know whatever you can you can pay off your mother-in-law's house. You can um, you know make sure that your cousins can go to college. Whatever whatever the thing is, you should probably do that. Those offers don't come around very often, and the bigger you get, the harder it is to maintain growth rate. And growth rate is the thing that the market values right now more than basically anything else. And you're, you know, uh, I point out in the book that basically in, in 2012, when Moz was doing 
5.7 million in revenue and we got an offer to sell, you know, I would have made somewhere between nine and $30 million from that, depending on how much, how much of it had been stock um, from the company that eventually ended up going public. But today, Moz is doing 10 times that amount of revenue, literally. I think Moz will close the year out at 57 million or something like that. Uh, and if it were to sell today, I'm not sure I would do as well. Yeah. So yeah. No, that's, 10 that's... times as much money, right? And, and seven years later, and probably make less. Yeah, I mean that happens when you're, you know, starting to to get funding, and you know, you put the the preferred shares, and you know, people, uh-huh. you know, close. And it's like not just, yeah, it's not just true for you. That yeah. is true for employees as well, right? So you you are not just sort of thinking about yourself here, right? This is not purely selfish. If you look at the amount of stock that employees hold in the early days, it tends to be a big number, right? Like, oh, here's my you know, my chief operating officer and they own, you know, 1.5% or 2% of the business, you know, or here's my CTO at 3% or here's my, you know, here's an engineer who's at 1% yeah. of the business versus, you know, fast forward 10 years later, here's a, you know, one of our senior engineers, they own 0.025%. Yeah. Is, right? yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. So to close the loop here on, on funding, uh, Rand, if you, if you could go to the past and give yourself advice, your younger self, before getting funded, what would that be? Um, I mean, we talked about this a little earlier. I, I would still raise the 2007 round. I think that was transformational for the business. Um, I think having the formality of, you know, a, a of the venture experience was actually really helpful. And, you know, Michelle Goldberg uh, from Ignition hugely upgraded my knowledge around everything to do with business. Um, I would not have raised the 2012 round, even though I, you know, um, I really wish I could still get Brad Feld on the board, but um, yeah. th- mostly that is because I don't think that uh, that money helped Moz. I don't think it was put to good use. I think we were healthier as a bootstrapped, well, yeah. but mostly bootstrapped, you know, a, a profitable reinvest in growth that way type of business. Um, I think that that we really took our eye off the ball with with all that money that came in. And so that would have been my advice to myself. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, uh, Ron, this is, it has been amazing. So I guess for the people that are listening, what is the best way to reach out and say hi? Yeah. Uh, so I'm most active on Twitter where I'm at Rand Fish, uh, but you can also email me Rand at sparktoro.com. Amazing. Well, Ron, thank you so much for being part of the show today. It has been a pleasure. My pleasure, Alejandro. Thank you for having me. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.